As the Christmas season is upon us and as we think about the many things going on, and I was struck this week as, as I was preparing and thought through something I, I wanted to read to you this morning that might be all too familiar. Hey, we're all misfits too, said Rudolph. Maybe we can stay here for a while. Well, you'd have to get permission from King Moonracer, said Charlie. Who's he? questioned Rudolph. Charlie replied, he rules here. Every night he searches the entire earth. And when he finds a misfit toy, one that no little girl or boy loves, he, he brings it here to live on this island till someone wants it. He's holding court in his castle right now. Come closer, said Moonracer. What do you desire? Rudolph replied, well, well, we're here. We're a couple of misfits from Christmas Town, and now we'd like to live here too. No, that would not be possible. This island is for toys alone, said King Moonracer. Yukon Cornelius replied, How do you like that, Rudolph? Even among fist misfits, you're a misfit. Well, as we think about the island of misfit toys, and we think about how oh, Rudolph wasn't welcome there, we encounter a people this morning, a group, if you will, that really weren't welcomed in society. A group of people that really weren't too welcomed to. They may have been misfits themselves, a, a group of scoundrels, if you will, that, that you know, polite society kind of pushed away and said, we don't really have room for you. This morning, as we consider Mark's Gospel, uh, we're continuing a, a, a series within Mark's Gospel, but look, if you will, a mini-series within that, which is Jesus' confrontation with religious leaders. With the religious uh, culture of His day, Jesus is confronted by them. And as we saw last week, that confrontation really centered around Jesus' authority. Who do you think you are coming in here and telling us, how we're going to live or what we're going to do. And so as we saw this confrontation over Jesus' authority to forgive sins, central to this passage is that, that really sinners and sin has to be dealt with. And Jesus is coming and confronting this misconception about sin and about unclean and clean. Last week, Jesus touched a dead, a dead man, a leprous man. And now, this week, He's hanging out, if you will, with the wrong crowd. Rather than hobnobbing with the religious elite of Jerusalem, Jesus is found hanging out with the misfits in Jewish society. Hanging out with those that are outcast and who are rejected. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, there should be one before you. You can grab that, open that. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to keep that copy and read it. Mark chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. 
and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning as we think about this passage, as we think about what does this passage mean? What is it that that, that Jesus is teaching us through this passage? I think it's this. The call of the king's people to repentance and faith depends not upon their merit of righteousness, but upon God's pure kindness. And through faith in Christ, the king's people receive God's unmerited goodness and are ushered into His kingdom. We see here a a group of people that are associated with Jesus. A group of people that are receiving God's love through Jesus' presence in their life. And so this morning, I want to think about this passage by considering really how we are confronted with God's pure kindness for us in Christ. How is it that that God's love comes to us? As we see in this passage, God's love extends beyond the social norm to the outcast and the disrepute. Jesus declares His purpose for coming was to call sinners to repentance and faith. And in this passage, then, we really see rise out three characteristics of God's love I want us to think about this morning. Three characteristics of God's love and how God's love is reflected in Jesus' behavior towards sin and sinners. The first thing we'll see is that God's love is unhindered by sin. God's love isn't hindered by the sin of, of these of these tax collectors and, and, and these other scoundrels. Second, that God's love is not earned by our obedience. As, as Jesus confronts this sort of meritorious kind of behavior from the scribes. And thirdly, we see God's love comes to us in Christ. That is, that the Christ came. And the fact that He came is a demonstration of God's love. First, let's consider that God's love is unhindered by sin. For us to understand what's so scandalous about this passage, I think we've got to understand just a little bit of a cultural background of the situation. You've got to understand, like, you know, what's the big deal, Jesus? Like, what's the big deal? He's hanging out with tax collectors. I mean, you know, yeah, that's probably not the first group maybe we would think of hanging, you know, we wouldn't think about hanging out with some IRS workers, but, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe perhaps you have some IRS people, friends, you know. So what's the big deal, right? What's, what's, the, what's the fuss all about here? Why the emphasis on tax collecting? What, what's this emphasis? What's the big deal? And so we're told in this passage that Jesus goes to really an unlikely candidate. Jesus is going to a man who's really, really, if you will, if we were playing dodgeball and we were picking teams, you know, this is a guy who you didn't want on your team, right? He was a cheater. He was a, he was a scoundrel. He, he was hated. Why is that? Well, well, tax collecting in, in, in really first century Judaism wasn't, you know, the, 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 the favorite uh, 
occupation for most people. For most people, uh, tax collectors were seen as disloyal. Tax collecting was seen as something that was that was scandalous, something that was of disrepute. That that when you saw a tax collector, you kind of walked the other way. This this guy was a cheater. This guy cheated for a living, and he did it really with the approval of the government. And so most likely, um, Levi worked for Herod Antipas, and he worked in, in what was most likely some sort of trade taxing. So what Levi was out there doing on the road was was collecting probably fish that were coming in uh, from the sea. He's out there taxing uh, these, the, these fishermen. As they're, as they're bringing their product into the market, he's being taxed. And so he's there collecting this tariff, if you will, uh, of, this money, uh, of this product coming into uh, Herod Antipas' uh, territory. And so, which, you know, you maybe expect, we live in a country that, that sort of is tax happy. And so uh, this for us may not be so surprising like you. We kind of expect, yeah, we pay taxes on everything, right? You buy a piece of property, you pay taxes. Uh, you buy a, a, a loaf of bread, you know, you pay taxes. Although in Maryland you don't, uh, in food. But, but uh, you know, in most states, you know, you're paying sales tax on most products that you buy. So, so it's, this really isn't unexpected to us. You know, but, but what made this guy so, what made this profession, really so scandalous was the fact that that the tax rate really wasn't a rate. It was sort of just a, a kind of thing you assessed based on the situation. So if you thought you could get more money out of a out of a fisherman, well, you got more money out of that fisherman. There wasn't like a, a percentage like we have here, a fixed percentage. You know, so so today when you go to the store and you buy, you, you can be expected you're going to pay probably six percent in tax for sales tax, right? You're not going to be shocked, right? The, the sales, you're not going to go down to Target and they're going to say, well, today the the rate is twelve percent, right? You're not going to be, whoa, you know that that's unexpected, right? So that, that was kind of the situation that was going on here, right? So these guys would kind of make things up as they went along. They, it was basically highway robbery. They were institutionally robbing these people of their money, and they were doing it all with the backing of the government. And see, that was the other issue. Not only were these guys really stealing, but these were Jewish men working for the Roman occupiers. These men were working for the enemy. They were traitors. They were men who had traded on their own people. And so they were despised. They were looked down upon. They were, they were ostracized. They, were, they, they, they weren't a part of regular society. They didn't go where everyone went. They didn't, they didn't hang out at the, at the common places that people hang. They were unwelcome. And in our passage this morning, we really see that rise out. Notice that each time in verses 15 through 7, in verses 15 through 16, <coughs> that each time tax collecting is mentioned, notice what it's mentioned with. Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners, right? When someone thought of a tax collector, they immediately thought of someone who was morally broken. Someone who was beyond repair. Someone who was despised. And perhaps in our own society, there are people in that way. Perhaps even in your own life, you're confronted with that, that kind of thinking. That a certain group or a certain sector of society, a certain piece of, of our own world, as we drive by, as we walk by them, as we encounter them, we think, you know what, 
They're beyond help. They can't be helped. They're broken. There's nothing we can do to help them. There's nothing we can do to fix them. So we think about them. We think about this unlikely candidate that that Jesus would go to a tax collector. Not only that he would go to a tax collector, but that he would make a tax collector his closest friend. Uh, Levi, who's most likely Matthew, uh, he invites Matthew to be a follower. He says, come and follow me. Be with me. Hang out with me. I want to hang out with you. And so we begin to see that Jesus is hanging with the wrong crowd. Jesus is hanging now. He's socializing with tax collectors and sinners, right? Jesus, what are you doing? You are at the wrong place. What are you down at the bar for, Jesus? You need to be at the church. You need to be where all the Christian good people are, right? And so we begin to see this this dichotomy between groups of people and who's worthy to be saved and who's not worthy to be saved. And begin to think, like, Jesus, who hangs out with this crowd? Right? I mean, let's sympathize a little bit this morning with the Pharisees here, with the scribes. Jesus, what are you hanging out with that crowd for? You know what happened? Mama always says you hang out with that crowd. You're, you're, you're going to become like them. You're going to be like them if you hang out with them. If you associate with sinners, you're going to become a sinner. If you hang out with the losers of the world, you're going to be a loser. What kind of people wants to go hang out with a bunch of sick people, a bunch of lame people, a bunch of blind people, and weak people, and helpless people? Who wants to do that? That's what these scribes are saying pushing aside those that are are broken in the eyes of the world, broken and beyond help and repair, pushing out those that that seem different than them. They're pushing them away. And as we encounter this passage, we see who would hang out with those people? King Jesus would hang out with those people. Friend, we are confronted with our own pride and our own prejudice in this passage. What kind of people are we associated with? In my experience among Christians, I can tell you this is exactly what happens among most Christians. You're a sinner. You have a bunch of friends that are sinners. And you become a Christian. And here's what happens. Within a couple years, you have no friends that are not Christians. You have all Christian friends. And you are defying this exact passage. You you, You and I are living in opposition to this passage. See, Jesus is pushing against the norm in society, and a norm that's even, even normal in our own Christian societies, in our own Christian groups, where you know only Christians are welcome, and only those that have everything fixed and everything right in their life, and you know all these things. One of the things we used to joke about uh, in a church I served at was, you know, our church would accept a family if they were, you know, an average middle class family, you know, with 2.5 kids and the whole bit, you know, and the dog at home and, you know, lived in a subdivision, all that. Well, then you're welcome at our church. Then you're, then you're, you, we, you could come and you, we want you here, you know. And there's this kind of attitude, this kind of spirit. It was kind of underlined. It was, it was under the surface. Hey, we didn't say that. I mean, we really didn't say that in practice. Not like we preached that. But that's how we behave. That's how we act. If you got it all together, then you're welcome here. You don't have any problems if you're not broken, if there's nothing. So we begin to see in this passage that, that God's love is extended and it's unhindered by sin. Jesus was not hindered that day because of their sin. Jesus didn't go into that situation and say, wow, you know, who you hang out with is who you become. Jesus didn't have that attitude. I don't know where we get that as Christians. 
I think where we get that is that, that we forget who we are in Christ. We, like, we deny that Christ has saved us, that, that the old life is gone and the new life has come. We, we, we neglect that. And friends, I'm not saying that you know, it's, it's you know, cool to condone sin. Jesus isn't in any way condoning sin in this passage. No way is Jesus doing anything to condone sin. In fact, if you looked at, at Luke's parallel to this exact story, Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, sin's okay, I'm cool with sin, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's not saying that. And neither do we do. Well, we need to understand that just because we have friends that are non-Christians, I'm going to push against something a little bit here. I'm going to push against something that I know is probably under the surface of my heart and your heart. Because you know how I know it? Because it's in the news every day. And here it is. How many friends have you intentionally tried to make that were Muslim? Friends, in our own community, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And to think that we, because of some sort of stigma about Islam, that that because you believe the media, that every... Muslim is a terrorist because you believe that lie that Satan has told American society. We have basically said, like the, like the scribes here, that God's love is hindered because of someone's religious preferences. Friends, that is not true. Jesus, if he was here today, I could tell you where he'd be hanging out. It definitely wouldn't be here. Jesus would be hanging out with sinners because sinners need a Savior. And the Savior came to save sinners. And, and we see that God's love is not hindered by sin. That God's love is not hung up with social norms. And so we need to look at our own hearts and think, who have I condemned? When we say that a certain sector of society, because of their choices and their lifestyles, are not welcome to hear the gospel, we're condemning those people to hell. We're saying, you know what? We'd rather see you burn for eternity than to experience the love of God. Friend, I can tell you one thing, and this leads to our second point, is that God's love is unearned. You see, an attitude that thinks that is an attitude that believes that God loves them because of something about them. Friend, one of the things we see in this passage and what Jesus is confronting is this notion that God's love is earned by personal performance. That by by our actions, God loves us more. That God's love increases and expounds and goes greater and bigger and more wonderful the more faithful we are and the more good we are, the more good deeds we do. Friends, that was the hang-up with these scribes. Look at what Jesus is... Con- These scribes are furious. What, Je- what are you doing, Jesus? Why are they furious? What, what was their deal? What was it- Why was this so scandalous? Because they believed in their heart that if you were around sinners, you became like them. That you became unclean like them. And Jesus is like, where did you get that from? Where did you come up with that notion? Where did you find that no- Jesus is like, that is nowhere in the law. Nowhere in the law do you find that sort of understanding. God's grace came to sinners like the nation of Israel. That was in rebellious and sin. As we consider the story of the Bible, 
God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, meaning that Abraham was the biggest idol worshiper on the streets. Abraham was the most wicked dude there was. Abraham wasn't a saint. It wasn't because Abraham was some cool guy and Jesus, you know, God wanted to go hang out with him and make a people out of him. He thought, you know, this guy right here, he's the guy who will make a really, really neat little group of people. We'll call them the Hebrews and they can have a cool language. And that wasn't the deal. That was not the deal at all. The deal was, is that Abraham was called out. Abraham was plucked out. He was called by a sovereign God who did not deserve or merit the love that God showed him. And the story we see with Abram is the story we see in our own lives as God calls us out of a mass of people and says, I will set my love on you. I will call you out of darkness into light. Jesus is saying, guys, guys, of all people, you should see it. And so he tells this little parable this little metaphor, this, this little hyperbole. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but sick people, right? He says, hey, who called the doctor, right? <laughs> who calls the doctor? Sick people, right? And so he says, look, if you think, you know, and it, it, this, is, this is true, right, in our own lives. So if we go to the hospital, what are we going to find there? Sick people, right? We're not going to find a bunch of well people. Anybody I know uh, that I've ever talked to, most people just don't like hanging out at the hospital, right? Why? Because there's sick people there, right? You don't want to be there. You don't want to be around sick people, right? I can't stand hospitals. I don't want to be. I, I just, ah, you know, you know. I go there because I'm sick. I'm go there because something's wrong. So there's there's a need there. There's a reason why I'm there. And Jesus is saying, hey, just like a physician hangs around sick people, well, duh. Uh, I'm a physician and I'm here to hang out with sick people, right? Jesus is saying, and he's pushing against the fact that the reason why I'm here isn't because society was good, because Judaism had everything together, or because things were going so well. The reason why Jesus came was because God's love was unearned. God's love can't be earned by personal performance. Friend, you know, we would think someone quite delusional if they had a broken leg and we looked at them and said, you need to go to the doctor. And they said, no, I'm good. Everything's fine. I got some Band-Aids I'll put on my leg. It's all right. It's okay. I'll be all right. I'll, I'll get through that, right? We say, You're, something's wrong with you. Something is completely wrong with you. Right? And so we see in this passage, Jesus is saying, you guys are crazy. You're delusional to think that a, that a physician wouldn't be around sick people. Why are you so surprised that the great physician is around sick and broken people? And he's reminding us here in this passage of our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. He's reminding us that pride blinds us. Friends, do you want to know why oftentimes our hearts are blinded to a certain group of people? It's because we think we're better than them. And we're blinded. We don't see the true need and the true brokenness. Oftentimes because we've never experienced anything like that. We've never in our own lives experienced that. Or we've forgotten who we are. Uh, you know, we begin to be gospel plus me kind of people. We begin to say Jesus and the gospel plus me. That, that's what equals something great. And we forget that God's love is so gracious and that He calls sinners to repentance. Friends, we must in our own lives and hearts fight against hypocrisy. 
You know, I, I used to be confronted by a gentleman every day, and every time I'd shake his hand and be like, you know, how are you doing? You know, maybe you've met someone like this. He'd say, you know, better than I deserve. He'd do that. Like, the first few times he did, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Kind of seems a little like, you know, a little extreme, man. It's like, dude, you're really, you're really, you know, better than I deserve. You know, man, golly, that guy's kind of, you know, jeez, you know. You begin to think about what he's saying. You begin to think about, you know what, that's something true to that. Something true to the fact that the love that we have experienced in our own lives, the love of God, is unearned. It's better than we deserve. We deserve God's wrath, and we deserve it because of our rebellion and sin. But, but God was gracious in that He sent His Son to die for sinners. When we begin to think that we earn God's love through personal performance, is when we either go to one of two ways, either to despair or to hard-heartedness and hypocrisy. Friends, it's fascinating when we read God's Word how over and over again, especially in the epistles, we're confronted with the reality of our own brokenness before God. As we consider even a passage like 2 Corinthians, and where, where Paul is arguing there in that passage in 2 Corinthians about reconciliation with God. Just the sheer fact that he's talking about reconciliation hints to the fact that there's something wrong with our relationship with God. The need to be reconciled well, indicates that there's a relationship problem, right? And that relationship problem is our sin. Our sin separates us from God and breaks our relationship with Him. And in that passage, he says, Therefore, we as ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I want you to notice something that Paul says. Now, listen to this. He says, I want you to be reconciled. Let's imagine like your mom coming to you. Now, I want you to make up with your brother or sister. I want you to make up with your friend that you're, you know, he says, be reconciled. Make up the, the, how do you do that, Paul? This is how. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, you want to know how you can have a relationship with God? It isn't through personal performance. It's through a personal savior. It's through someone dying on your behalf. It's, it's through a, a sinless Savior who became sin, who became you, who took your place, who died on your behalf. And so we begin, begin to see that God's grace is, one, unhindered by sin, and we see that, it's, that it is undeserved, it's unmerited, that, that God's love goes to us, not because of us, but because of Him and His love for us. And this leads us then to a final point. God's love comes to us in Christ. I want just to sort of hone in on one thing Jesus says in this passage. Verse 17. Verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, I don't know how many times I read that this week. And I was struck. But I came. He came. The fact that He came demonstrates His love. He came. Friend, do not miss this grand and glorious point that He came. That the God came and entered into human history. That He came to save sinners. That He came to, to redeem those who were lost. God's love is displayed that Christ actually showed up. 
Friend, over the next few weeks, we're going to consider that in the Old Testament and think about God's promises to come. But do not miss the point that His promises are fulfilled in Christ and that He came, that He actually showed up. And as we think about Paul's words in 1 Timothy, he says this. Paul picking up, I think, on the same phrase, says this. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Christ Jesus came. Paul is struck by that same reality that Christ came. That He was sent. And if He came, then He was sent by someone. Who sent Him? The Father. The Father sent Him. He sent His Son to die in our place. And God's love is most clearly expressed through Christ. From this passage reminds us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And it begins with us. It begins by saying, if God had not saved me, I would not be saved. If God had not purposed from the foundation of the world to call me out of darkness into light, I would be lost and helpless. And so it is with sinners around us. And so it is with our lost friends and family. The God in His grace has saved sinners. Friends, we are blinded to our sinfulness. And we must pray and plead that God would open our eyes to our own prejudice, to our own, our own ideas of segregation, where we think other parts of society are less deserving of God's grace and love, and consider our own sin, and that God's love was unhindered by it, and that His love is unmerited, nothing that we can do to earn it. And recognize that God's love is only in Christ. Through faith in Christ, God's love is experienced in our lives. John Newton, a former slave owner, and familiar perhaps to many, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote other hymns, but that's probably the most well-known that John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace. And John Newton lived to be 80 82 years old, and up to that time, he continued to preach. I mean, that brother was preaching all the time, and, and he had an active ministry really up until the last couple of years of his life where he was unable because of health. He was sort of bedridden, and it's recorded that one of the things he would say often in those last few days of his life, when, he would, when friends would come by and visit him as, as long-term ministry companions would come by and just to hear one last thing from John Newton. One, one last expression from him. Just something they could hold on to. John Newton would say this. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Maybe that what we remember as we consider our own sin. And as we consider Christ the great Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are overwhelmed by your goodness and love in Christ. That you would save sinners like us.
Father, I pray that you would expose our own prideful, Father, our hatred hearts that often pull back the love of God from others. Father, I pray that you would expose where we too think that others are unworthy of the gospel. Where we are like the scribes. Where we think that others are unworthy to hear of your love and grace. Father, help us that we would not be like them. Where we would say, oh, we only want the good people. Lord, may we be reminded that your love isn't for good people. That your gospel isn't for righteous people or good people. That your love, that your gospel is only for sinners. And every one of us is a sinner. And Father, my prayer today is that your spirit would stir our hearts to to trust in a great Savior. That we would know that, that our life with you is not dependent on us and our personal performance, our behavior, our own goodness but rest solely in Christ alone, in His goodness, in His grace. For you made Him to be sin. You made Him to be us. You, he died in our place. In our, in our, we deserve that. We deserve your wrath. May we trust in a great Savior today, I pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.